Hallelujah. Well, this morning, you guys ready for the word? Let's go ahead and pray as we come to it. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your great love. And I pray this morning is that we step into your word, that we would be challenged, that we'd be convicted, that our eyes would be open, our hearts would be open to receive everything that you have for us, Lord. Lord, every time we, want, we enter your presence, we don't want to leave the same way that we came in. We want to grow. We want to be closer to you. We want to have a greater revelation of who you are. And we thank you that we're going to receive that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So this morning I've entitled the message, His Way, My Way. Anybody ever have that fight with God? His way or my way? See, the thing that we have going on right now that I think happens in our world is that, um, and I'm actually not even going the direction you guys are, are thinking, I, I imagine. I imagine you think that you heard this, you see this title, and you're like, oh, he's going to talk about arguing with God, wanting to have it your way. But it's actually not what I want to talk about today. I want to piggyback off of what we talked about last week, how we, we talked about we serve a supernatural God, a God who was able to do miracles, to do things greater than we could ever imagine. But the problem is, is that today, we, we have come to a point where, whether we like it or not, we begin to limit God and what will allow him to do in our lives based on the experiences and what we think is possible. Many times when we look at God, we begin to attribute to God the, the uh, qualities that our own natural father has. Have you ever known people that have a really hard time of, of, of understanding God as a father when they've had a, a poor father themselves? And they can't understand how can God be a good father. I've had a father. I know what fathers are like. They're awful. And they have a really hard time relating to God the Father. And the problem with that is, is that they, they can actually limit what God can do in their life by the way that they, they, they treat him and allow him into their life. Or maybe we think that God behaves like what we see on TVs or movies. I know for me, when I was younger, a lot of who I, I, I attributed to who God was was what I learned about what they said about him on TV. Because I didn't actually spend time in the Bible myself. How many know if you want to know who God is, you've got to read the Bible? You can't get your, your info from TV. You can't get your info from somewhere else. Matter of fact, you should even be careful about getting your info from pastors and other people that are up here teaching. You need to have your own relationship with God. You need to read what the Bible says. And you should actually, anybody that's, that's, that's preaching the Bible, you need to make sure that they're, they're doing it right. You, you need to have a foundation to know if they're, they're taking you down some trail you don't want to go down or if they're actually speaking the truth. But back to what I was saying, we, we tend to limit God or what we think God could do by what we think is possible. Now, we talked last week about God being a supernatural God. You should already have an idea that what we think is possible is not actually what is possible with God. What the world thinks is possible is so much more finite than what God can actually do. And here's the thing, that when we deal with stuff in our lives, I believe that the bigger the problem you're dealing with, the greater level of faith you're going to need. The Bible says that, we, that, that if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can move mountains. And I personally feel like so many people have misunderstood that verse. It doesn't mean that if you have an itty bitty little bit of faith, you can move mountains. It doesn't say if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, which is how everybody interprets that. It says if you have faith like a mustard seed. And what a mustard seed does is it starts out really, really small. And you can't do much with a mustard seed. But if you water it, 
and you let it grow and you nurture it. It grows up into a massive plant that even large birds can land on and take refuge in. See, that's what faith like a mustard seed means. It means that, that if you have something that's small, a small issue takes a small amount of faith. But big issues, you need to have faith like that mustard seed, faith that's grown, faith that's been exercised, and faith that you can apply to what's going on in your life. You know, one of the ways that I've described it is when we put our faith in stuff, and, and, and I talked a little bit about it last week too. It seems strange to me that in the, uh, in, in the Old Testament, people were like, or in the New Testament, I'm sorry, when they brought in the guy and Jesus said, you're forgiven of your sins, and they all freaked out. How could Jesus forgive sins? And he says, well, to prove that I have power on earth to forgive sins, I'm going to go ahead and tell him to take up his pallet and walk. And the guy gets completely healed, and they're like, ah, yeah, healing, we've seen that, that's normal. But today, the idea of having a little bit of faith to get saved, everyone's okay with that. We all understand that. You put your trust in God, you get saved. But somebody getting cured from cancer is a, a, a massive miracle. It took people putting some massive trust in God. But here's the thing. God is too big to be placed in the little boxes that we construct for ourselves. God is too big for us to tell him what he can and what he can do. Because he may very well and often does do things in ways that are totally different than how we would have done them or how we would have expected him to do them. Amen? You know, it's funny, we sang a song this morning, Do What You Are Famous For. And I started listing a bunch of miracles of God, you know, part the waters, do all these things. But most of us have no expectation for God to move like that because we've already decided those things can't happen today. A lot of it's because we've grown up in a world where they tell us that, uh, that everything can be explained by science. They've, they've told us our whole lives that miracles can't happen. But the truth is they can and our God is big and can do amazing things. Amen? Amen. This is what Isaiah 55, 8 says. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. You know what? I think this is one thing that we have to get a hold of if we ever want to grow in our faith. We have to understand that God's going to do things different than we might expect. And we have to stop telling God how he can work and how he can move in our lives. Too many people put up a wall and say, God, you can come into this area of my life, but this other area, I'm going to keep that to myself and do it my way. Or we say, God, I want you to bless me in this area, but let me tell you how you're going to do it. And we begin to tell God our plans and our ways instead of having him, let it, just letting him work in, in, in our life. You know, just like a good earthly father, God wants to take care of us. He wants what's best for us. And if, and if an earthly father, a good earthly father, I know some people have had some bad fathers and they find this hard to relate to, but a good earthly father wants to take care of their kids and he wants to provide for them to make sure that they're safe and they're protected and they're healthy. Well, if earthly fathers can do that much, how much more so can God, our heavenly father, want to do for us? If I'm being honest with you guys, So many times I've tried to tell God how I'd like it done in my life. And if I'm being really honest, I'm not talking like before I became a pastor. There was probably times last week that I was explaining to God how he should do things in, our life, in my life. And the truth is, is I think we all do that. But the problem is, is that we have, to, we have to take a look at what we're asking and then wonder why do we get upset when God doesn't move something how we want it to be moved. 
We begin to explain to God how to work on our lives and then get upset when he doesn't work that way. The problem, or the thing is, is I've lived long enough to know that there are times when I wanted God to do something a certain way. He said no. And one year, two years, five years, ten years later, I go, thank God he didn't listen to me. Turns out God knew what he was doing. Turns out God was actually moving in that situation where I thought God was nowhere to be found. The truth is, is my entire life has been a life in preparation to serve God. I look back at my life and I see that everything that he's done and all the plans that I've had that have fallen through, but even in the midst of that stuff, I see how God was using those things to prepare me for the very situation that I'm in right now, to be able to do the things that I'm able to do right now, whether it's learning technology or learning how to speak in front of people or learning how to manage people. All of these things God did to prepare me to be where I am right now even though I had different ideas of how my life would turn out. For those of you who know my testimony, being a pastor was not high up on my list. It was right underneath there between the guy that goes in New York and looks for those big drains in the sewage pipes. That's, that's where pastor was on my list of things I wanted to do. I didn't want to be a pastor. But God had other plans. And in all those areas where I thought I was doing something else, he was actually preparing me for this. And when areas when I thought, God, why did I lose this job? Why did this change? Why did this door close? You know, I've been praying that I would get this or have this. And, and I look back now and go, man, he was, he was getting things done. He was in charge. But I wanted to tell God how I wanted my life to be run. We have a very short and narrow cone of vision when it comes to our lives. But God sees the big picture. God knows what he wants for our lives. He knows how all the pieces fit together. And if we don't understand and grasp that God has a better handle than we do in any given situation, we're either, one, always going to be frustrated, or two, we're going to push back and fight so hard we actually limit God's ability to work in our lives. And when I say these things, I don't mean that we somehow are able to limit God's power. God is still as powerful as he ever was, no matter if we want to let him work in our lives or not. The truth is, though, God is a perfect gentleman. And if you don't want him button in, he'll back off. He won't, let you, he, he won't push his way into your life. We can limit God working in our life by rejecting him, by pushing him away. And you guys think, Pastor Wayne, that's a pretty bold statement. That's a little bit crazy. But remember when Jesus went to his home? This is Jesus, right? The Son of Man. This is, this is God. Walks into his own hometown. And he says, a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown. And he could do very few miracles there except for a couple healings. Why? Because of their unbelief. How many know Jesus was still Jesus? Jesus could still heal. Jesus could still do miracles. But because of their unbelief, he was unable to do anything. They actually limited God's ability to work in their life because of how they viewed God. I want to look at the story of Naaman. This is a, you guys know the story of Naaman? What a fantastic story. Naaman's 5, 1 through 3 says, <clears throat> Naaman, commander of... Naaman, that's not Naaman 5. 
2 Kings 5, 1 through 3, starts with the word Naaman. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man. You guys are wondering what Bible I was reading from, huh? It's the one with second hesitations. <laughs> Naaman, <laughs> Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman's the number two in command under Ben-Hadad II, who is the king of Aram Damascus. He's extremely successful. He's an extremely successful general. He's had very, very many victories. And lepers were treated a little bit differently uh, in other countries. And in Israel, if you were a leper, you were sent to the outside of, t- uh, of the city. You couldn't even come in the city. And so you were, you were either cured, or if you, if you weren't cured, you died from it. You were just never allowed back in. You were considered unclean. But in other nations, they treated him a little bit differently. And, and he was able to, to uh, as long as he could do his job, he could operate in his position. However, he had a terminal disease. Uh, leprosy would eventually kill you unless you were, you were healed from it. And we have this young girl who we, we find out that she's actually... Um, a little girl that was carried off from Israel on one of the raids. She's a slave. She was in her city. Her parents were probably killed in this raid. And they took this little girl. She's now a slave. And we find one of the the most interesting responses that I can imagine coming from this little girl. Now, if I was this little girl, I would be like, oh, he's going to get what's coming to him. He's got leprosy. It's eventually going to kill him. You know, he's reaping what he sowed. He's going to get it. God's going to get him. But what is she? She doesn't say that. What she says is she sees this guy. She speaks to her, to, to, to his wife, and he says, Look, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. You see, the thing is, is when we think about, oh, God's going to get him, and we, th- we think those kind of thoughts, I mean, you know, that, that, those are carnal thoughts. Those aren't godly thoughts. That's, that's us thinking in our own desires and our wants, not thinking about what God may want. But she had the heart of God. Even though she was a slave, she still trusted God. And she knew that if God wanted her free, it didn't matter if he had leprosy or not. And really, this isn't such a strange idea, because did you know the Bible says to pray for your enemies? That's all she's doing. Matthew 5, 44 says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, that's something I don't think is going on a lot in the Christian church right now. Many people in the Christian community aren't super happy who was just voted in as our president. How many of you have been praying for him, though? Truth is, if he's there, God put him there. The Bible says that all authority comes from him. If he's in authority, God put him there. May not have been the way I would have done it, but I'm going to trust God. But the Bible says we should pray for him, even if if, if we don't understand, even if we don't like him. And that goes for for anybody. The Bible says pray for your enemies. So this little girl has the heart of God. She, She tells Naaman, 
uh, Naaman's wife about uh, this prophet. So Naaman says, you know what? I'm going to give it a shot. And he heads that way. 2 Kings 5, 12 through 14. He gets there and uh, uh, he's standing before the prophet. And this is what happens. He says, are not Abana and Parpar, Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is, it is a great word. The prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? And he actually said to you, Wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So like I said, Naaman is a high-ranking official. He's number two where he comes from. And he expected to be treated with respect just like that. He expected because this is how kings treated people. You, you, you came in, he expected to be welcomed. I don't know if he wanted a ticker tape parade. He wanted roses or palm branch. I don't know what he was expecting. But having angry Elisha come out and uh, uh, tell him to go wash in the river. I mean, Elisha didn't even come out. He sent a servant out there to tell him what to do. Elisha couldn't be bothered. Elisha's a funny prophet. You should read about him. Sometimes he just can't be bothered. He's a cranky old man sometimes. He's funny. Like when he was told to give his mantle to Elisha. You read that story? He basically just walks by, throws him at him, and walks off. Doesn't even try to talk to him. He doesn't even care about the guy. <laughs> He's funny. But anyway, he doesn't even go out to, to, to meet Naaman. And uh, a messenger came out and says, hey, go wash in the Jordan. And then Naaman gets all upset. What a strange way to react if you think about what's going on here. He's looking to be healed. He doesn't get greeted like he expected to be greeted, but he gets an answer. He says, look, if you want to be healed, go do this. And instead of going and just doing it, he was so offended and so upset that he was going to storm off and not do it. He had traveled all the way from Damascus to Samaria, and now he was upset over maybe a few more miles to go make it to a river to dip himself in it. And here's the thing. Did you notice what he said? The one thing that we all say that gets us in trouble? He said, uh, oh wait, it must, be in a, it must be in the scriptures right before it. The problem was, is he says, I thought if you read it, I believe it's a little bit before this. Did I mean it? Yeah, but it's not in this passage. My notes are all messed up. You have to forgive me. But he does say, I thought of how this would happen. And here's the thing is we can get our, ourselves in trouble with that phrase when we begin to tell God how we think it should be, how we think it should work out. And we get ourselves in, in problems. So he says, could I not have just gone to wash in my own rivers? God, can I just tell you how I would have done it? I wouldn't have made me travel all the way down here. I would have just washed in the rivers of my homeland. Can I not tell you how I would do it? And because it doesn't happen his way, he turns away in a rage. Because he thought of how things would happen. He had an expectation of how the prophet and subsequently how God was going to move in his life. He expected great fanfare and a big show. Have you ever been angered by the way God moved because you thought it should have happened some other way? I know I have, or maybe disappointed. I don't think I've ever flown off in a fit of rage. 
but I've certainly been disappointed and not understood. Normally, I get my head out of my butt pretty quick and begin to trust God again. I'd recommend you do the same thing. Because the truth is, God's always right. And if you're not in agreement with him, you're always wrong. That's just how it is. But the, the, the thing that I noticed is that this, we look at these stories and we're like, man, Naaman, what a dummy. Why wouldn't he just listen? And we forget that we actually do this kind of all the time. Many of us try to decide what we're going to do to be saved. Right? There's people that, that uh, uh, we tell that, look, you just got to put your trust in God and you're going to be saved. And they can't believe it because they know there's got to be something more to it. There's got to be more than just, obviously I have to do something. Or how many of us who are already saved end up letting the other stuff creep in? Oh, if I don't read my Bible enough, God's going to kick me out. If I don't give enough money to the church, God's going to kick me out. If I don't do enough nice things, God's going to kick me out. Your salvation is not dependent on any of those things that you do. It's simply trusting in Him. That being said, if you're born again, the things that you do should change. You should look different. It doesn't mean that we can put our trust in God and then do whatever we want. Because if you have a real experience with God, if you have true saving faith, the Bible says that you have a new spirit inside of you. You are changed. You are different. You're not who you used to be. Therefore, you should stop acting like who you used to be. You've been set free from all of that sin and all of that stuff, the, the, the bondage that was holding you down. There should be evidence of salvation in your life. But none of those things is what we do to somehow appease God. But look, today even we do it. We try to tell God how things are going to work. So he says in verses 12 through 14, are not these rivers good enough he was so angry, he was going to walk away from his miracle. And pride and offense will get you in all kinds of trouble if you let that reign and rule in your life. Naaman actually had to be humbled by one of his servants. Had to sit him down and say, listen, Linda, we got something going on here. Why, why are you making such a big deal about this? If you would, what if he came out here and told you you had to do this great thing in order to be cleansed? You would be like, oh man, that's worthy of me to do. I'd just go out there and knock it out and do it. And, and, and you would do it, but he tells you to do a little thing. Just go down to the river and be clean. And you won't even do it. So, so Naaman's kind of humbled by one of his servants who, his servants seem to be a, a wise group. He should be listening to them more often. But like I said, so many people do the same thing. They can't understand how God would, would give this free gift of grace and we, we expect we must have to do something for it to earn it. Christians get wrapped up into it. But the problem is salvation becomes something you've accomplished, not something God has accomplished when you let your head get working in that direction. You see, if he would have done something mighty and great, he would have figured that I did this to heal myself. When God wanted to be clear, no, no, it was me doing this. You came to me and I'm working in your life and not only did god restore him how he should have been at the time without the disease but it says to him if we keep going he says he was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean mm. 
Hey, I did have it in my notes. I thought. There it is. See? I knew what I was, I was thinking there. Praise God. I just want to make sure you guys didn't know I, was, know I wasn't crazy. I actually had that there. Hallelujah. But it says his, his flesh was restored to like that of a little child. He did more than what he expected. He just wanted to be healed. God went above and beyond in his life. God did more than he ever could have imagined. Ephesians 3.20 says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. You see, when we try to tell God how to work, we're limited by what we think. When we let God work, he's limited to how he thinks. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And he's able to do far, not, not a little more than we ask or think. It says he's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. I think some of us would be amazed at what would happen in our lives if we would just let God move instead of telling him how to move. Did you know that during this time period, not one leper in Israel was healed, was cured? Only some heathen, some Gentile. It's not, he's, he's not a Jew. He came to God and God healed him. I wonder if the lepers of those times had, had ideas about how God would work. I bet they certainly didn't think he was going to heal some Gentile, some heathen, someone who didn't even believe in God. I bet they had some pre preconceived ideas of what God could and would do. In 2 Kings 15 through 19, we hear Naaman coming back to, to Elijah. says, then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him and he said, behold, I know now that there, I know... I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimen to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow, my, bow myself in the house of Rimen, when I bow myself in the house of Rimen, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, Go in peace. Because Naaman had finally submitted to God, God was able to work in his life, even though it was unconventional, especially compared to how Naaman thought it was going to work, how he, he thought it was going to pan out. But Naaman had to learn something, that God doesn't move in our lives because he expects something in return. God moves in your life because he loves you and he cares about you. This is, why, this is what motivates God. God motivates God. We don't motivate God. And Elisha doesn't receive this gift. from Naaman says, look, and this is a, this is a good attitude, I think. He recognizes that it was God that did it. And I think that should be our natural response when God works in our lives is, is what can we do? Did you know that that's, that's why we give, that's why we tithe? That's not because we're trying to earn something. It's not because we're trying to, to talk God into something. But it's the natural response of a God that's done everything for you. How do you respond any other way? But right here, he, he goes to, to, to give money. He wants to give a gift to Elijah. And Elijah says no. And this is because Elisha wants to cement into Naaman's mind that, that 
if you think about this, he's now a, a young a convert, a baby believer, if you will. He's now putting his eyes on the right God. And, and he wants to cement in Naaman's mind that you don't do things to earn from God. The gifts of God are not bought with money or with our actions. They're not bought. Now, we can excuse Naaman because he doesn't really know who God is. He's learning all this, right? And he doesn't really know who God is. He's figuring this out. And he goes on to show, even still, he talks about bringing a, uh, two mule loads of earth back with him because he still doesn't quite understand who God is and how he works. He figures that, that uh, if I'm going to worship this God, I've got to bring the land back. The truth is, is back then, they, the gods in their minds were tied to the land that they were on. They were the people's gods because of the land. So he didn't quite understand that God was actually everywhere and he didn't need a bucket load of dirt to worship God. Just because he left the land didn't mean he left God nor God had left him. So truthfully, even though misguided and misplaced, this is why you need to spend time on the Word and learn and understand, even though it was misguided and misplaced, it was still a small act of faith because he wanted to serve and worship God. And then he makes a commitment to not offer any other sacrifices to any other God. He's, he says, listen, I know your God is God. I'm going to trust in him. And then he also asks an interesting thing. He says, look, when I go back, I'm going to be with my master. There are some things that I'm going to have to do that are going to be at odds with serving your God. And he says, will your God please forgive me? He's asking for grace knowing that he was going to have to perform some rituals, but he wanted Elisha to know that his heart wasn't in him. And Elisha says, go in peace. Such an amazing story of a man who decided he knew how God should move. Almost lost his miracle because he told God how he should move and it didn't work out like he wanted, but instead he finally humbles himself, does things the way God wants, lets God move in his life, and he has a miracle take place. And we end up having a man who begins to serve God because he just let God. But there's so many other amazing stories in the Bible where God moves in ways that from a human's perspective are just ridiculously bonkers. They don't make any sense. Judges 7, 19 through 21 is the story of Gideon. It says, so Gideon and the hundred men who were were with him, came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. And when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands, then the three companies blew their trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and the right hands the trumpets to blow and they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran and they all cried out and fled. So this is a, a fantastic story of God moving in a way that we wouldn't expect him to move. So if you had to go to war, how would you do it? Gather up the biggest army you could, get them all together. Ideally, you want a force that's much larger than the other force. So even if you, you don't have the skill and talent to beat them, you have the numbers so that you'll still win the battle. So Gideon's getting ready to fight Midian, and he starts with 32,000 soldiers. Not a bad group, right? 32,000 soldiers he's got. And God says, wait a minute. Because this is Gideon's plan, right? He says, all right, God, I know you want me to go to war. Let me gather up all the men. I'm going to do what you said. 
but here's how we're going to do it. So he gathers up 32,000 men, and God says, no, this isn't going to work out. Come over here, Gideon. We need to talk for a second. Here's what I want you to do. He says, I want you to send home whoever's fearful and trembling. I mean, you know, when you go to war, you're going to have some people that are afraid. He says, I want you to send home those who are fearful and trembling. 22,000 people went home. And now he's left with 10,000. And he's like, all right. Okay, God, I can work with this. It's not as many as we had. You know, in my mind, the outlook is not looking as good because we don't have as many people, but I can work with this. Okay, okay, okay. And really, the argument could be made, if these people are fearful and they're afraid and they're trembling, they're they're probably not going to make good soldiers anyway. Maybe they would have just got in the way anyway, so maybe this isn't a bad thing. It's down to 10,000. And then God says, but wait, there's more. Come over here, Gideon, let's talk. All right, here's what I want you to do now. You take these 10,000 men, you send them to the water to get something to drink. And the, uh, the ones that bend down on all fours and they drink straight from the river, I want you to send them home. But the ones who bring the water up to their mouth, I want you to take those to war. Now, maybe this makes sense, right? Because you want people that are ready to go, right? And if you send them to get a drink of water, the ones that dive down on all fours and they're drinking straight out of the river, they're not paying attention. They're not, you know, they don't have their eye on the prize. Anybody could come up behind them. So maybe they're not ready. But the ones that they've been down and they, they were bringing the water up, you know, they're, they're alert. They're looking around. So maybe this is a good thing. He says, okay. And he sends the people to get water. And you know how many he's left with? 300. He had 32,000 men. Then he's down to 10,000, and now he's got 300 men. And God says, this is what you're going to beat the Midians with. Can you imagine? looking? Are you sure, God? Because there's way more of them than there are of us. But you know what? It doesn't end there. God says, you know what, though? You're not going to take any weapons either. You're just going to take some jars, You're going to take a torch and some trumpets and you're going to fight them that way. And at this point, Gideon has got to be like out of his mind thinking God is crazy because this doesn't make any sense. I mean, you'd be better off taking a knife to a gunfight than taking some pots and pans to a battle against way more people. But that's the story of how this goes. God doesn't work the way we think he should work. But Gideon trusts God, and this is what happens here. They go in, they break the pots, they have the torch, they blow the trumpets, they say a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon, and they don't even have to fight. The the, the Midians freak out, and they just run away. Who would have expected that? That's not how I would have planned this battle. That's not how I would have planned this war. But God doesn't always move the way that we expect him to move. But what if Gideon would have said, no way, that's crazy, I'm not going to do it. The only way I'm doing it is if I have all 32,000 men. It wouldn't have worked out. They would have probably been defeated. I know they would have been defeated because God wouldn't have been with them because God had a plan. That's what happens to us so often. God has a plan. It doesn't make sense to us, so we push it away. We do things our own way, and we get ourselves in a mess. 
What about this story? John 2, 3 through 10. It says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, could you imagine saying that to your mom? Woman? He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take them to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now became wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called to the bridegroom and said to them, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, we look at this miracle and we're like, this is pretty amazing. God turned water into wine. You know, Jesus turned water. We all know the story. But have you ever thought about what the words actually say here? If you think about this, you'll understand why it says some of the things it says. First, it says there's six stone water jars there for what? Jewish rites of purification. This wasn't their drinking water. This wasn't uh, clean water ready to go. This is what they would use for purification. You, scholars talk about what this water is used for. It's for cleaning up when people would come in. You know the water they use to, to, to clean off their feet when they're going through that stuff? That's this water. This is the right to pure. This is, not, this is not the water that you want to be drinking. You would rather be down on all fours drinking from the river than drinking this water. So this is where this water comes from. And, and now that you know that, now you know why this makes sense. The, the master of the feast did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Why was that important? That's why. Because of where the water came from. This was not clean water. This was not good water. But Jesus does a miracle. And not only does he turn water into wine, but this wine is the best wine. It was better than what they had served at first. This isn't how I think I would have done it. I mean... God could have made, sent somebody with a, with a wagon of fresh wine. He could have taken what was left of the, the, the other wine and just kept pouring it. At least it's good wine. It just, God, we've seen God move in other ways that are miraculous. But no, God takes the dirty purification water, the, the stuff that's used for cleaning, and he turns it into wine. And he makes like a 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine. Once again, God exceeds our expectations. Or maybe exceeds not the right word. Thwarts our expectation. <laughs> but he, he doesn't just make wine, he makes the best of wine. But it's, a, it's another example of God not moving, at least not in the way that I would have done it. Maybe that's how you would have thought about going about it, but certainly not me. What about Jericho? So in Joshua 6, 2 through 5, the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. With its king and mighty men of valor, you shall march around the city wall, all the men of war going around the city once. This shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up 
everyone straight before him. This is another. So they're sieging a city. You know, when you were going to siege a city back then, typically, uh, and, and this goes through all out history where they had these kind of buildings, uh, anything with large walls around them like this, castles, anything like that. Typically, these things are almost um, unpenetrable. Um, what they would normally do is actually they would go ahead and block the ability for goods and supplies to come in and they would starve them out because that was faster than trying to break down these walls. Depending on where something was built, if you were built up on a, on a, on a hill where you didn't have any solid ground around it, you couldn't even use siege equipment. The only thing that you could do was starve them out. But God says, look, we're not going to fight. We're not going to battle. I just want you to march around the city. And then on the seventh day, you're going to blow the trumpets. You're all going to shout, and you're going to have victory. The walls are going to fall down flat. Now, we look at this, and, and most of us in our head, we, we picture like the brick wall around our backyard, right? If you kicked your brick wall over, you could just walk right over it. But you've got to imagine, these people are there. They see this wall, and scholars say this wall was wide enough to fit multiple chariots side by side they could ride around the, 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 the top of this wall. Think about this. If the wall just fell over, it would probably still be as tall as it was when it was right side up because it's so wide. So this wall is massive. Nobody's going to think a bunch of shouting is going to get them through this wall, but when they do it, it says the wall will fall down flat. I can't even picture this in my head like was it like you know god unplugged the air valve and it went down did it fall into the ground did it just become i i i i would love to have seen what actually happened maybe you know one day when i get to heaven well i'll know how this worked but what we do know is the wall went flat and they were able to cross it if i was planning the siege of jericho not how i would have done it and I'm certainly thinking that they thought God was crazy too, but they trusted him. They did what he said. And he was faithful like he always is. What about just the story of Jesus' birth? Luke 2, 4 through 7 says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. This is one I know was God, because every other religion in the world talks about salvation differently. Every other religion in the world, it's all about how you can do something to get right with God. Because that's how we think as humans. We want to talk about how we can do things right. But when God makes a plan, it's a little bit different. One, we know that God came to us. And say we were on board with that. Like, okay, that's different, but it's God. He's going to come to us. If you were God, how would you send your Savior? Probably like what the, the, the Jews thought. Some mighty warrior who was going to free them from the oppression that they were under, he would probably be buff and rugged and handsome. Probably would look a little like me. <laughs> you know, and he would come in and he would save 
the day. But that's not how God works. He sends a baby. The most, let's face it, have you ever had a baby when they're babies? They're worthless. They don't do anything but make a mess. They can't clean up after themselves. They can't walk by themselves. They can't feed themselves. They can't do, they are the most fragile beings that I can think of. And that's what God sent his Savior as. Can you imagine that? Is that the way you would have done it? It's not the way that I would have sent a Savior. But God sent the most fragile thing in the world to come and save us. And because he's God and he knows what he's doing, it was successful. And because of that, we're able to have a Savior. We're able to be forgiven of our sins. All because of him sending his son to us to take care of our problem. Not like every other religion in the world where it's about you taking care of your own problem. That's how man thinks. God does things differently. So why do we always try to tell God how to do things? In Romans 9, 10 through 16, it says, Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived child children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. And it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The Jews did not expect God to go to the Gentiles. The Jews had their own plan of what God was going to do. But the thing is, God doesn't move according to our plans. He moves according to his plan. And Paul here is actually trying to demonstrate that when God moves, it's his choice, not our choice. It's his will, not our will on how God chooses to move. And I believe this is another one of those verses that's, that's so often misunderstood. Many people have used this verse here, you know, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion to somehow limit who God is going to save. You know, only this religion, only this, you know, only, only if you're this type of Christian are you going to be saved. Everybody else is out in the cold. We're the true Christians. And they, or, or, or the idea that, that uh, only certain people are going to be saved, the ones that God wants saved, and if God doesn't want you saved, you don't have a chance. Salvation isn't for everybody, only for those who are elect or chosen. And they use this as an argument. But the problem is, if you don't read the whole context of what he's talking about, this, well, he wasn't making an arc argument for exclusion. He was making an argument for inclusion. He wasn't arguing that some people wouldn't make it. He's saying, listen, Jews, you're trying to say the Gentiles won't be allowed in, but who are you to say what God is going to do? Because the Bible says he will have mercy on whom he has mercy and he will have compassion on whom he has compassion, saying that if he wants to have mercy and compassion on the Gentiles, who are you to say otherwise? This was always an argument of inclusion, not exclusion. But it was God's way. Romans 9.20 says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? We need to get that through our heads. 
it's God's will that's important, not our will. And we need to stop telling God how to do things because we don't understand the whole big picture. Another time that that happens is in Job 38, 1 through 7. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you. And you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Can you imagine being Job? Or any of those other people I just mentioned. Can you imagine being Job? And having God say this to you, who are you? <laughs> God telling you to stand up and dress for action like a man? Listen here, you know how it works. Stand up like a man and you tell me how it is. But then God says to him, listen, I'm going to question you. You make it unto me. Were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you know about it. Obviously the answer is no, Job wasn't there, God was. And that's the thing we have to understand when we begin to tell God how things should work. Because that was the problem here. Job began to tell God how, how it should be. And God answers back. I pray that I'm never so stubborn that God has to speak to me like this. I've done it for moments, but I usually, like I said, get back on track because I realize that I'm, I'm, I'm thinking incorrectly. This is one of those areas the Bible says take every thought captive. Take those thoughts captive and start thinking correctly. Quit telling God how to do things. Because the truth is, is he knows the big picture. He was there when the earth was created. He was there when everything was formed. He knows how it all works together. Men right now who are very, very smart are trying to spend, they're, they're spending a lot of money and dollars on doing research to figure out how the earth works and how it all works together. God already knows. He's the one that put it together. I thank God that he is patient with us in our ignorance and truthfully, many times in our arrogance. And we'll end here today. Isaiah 40, 13 through 14. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? What man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way Who showed him the way of understanding? There are so many stories in the Bible that we didn't have time to go through that just describes ways that men wouldn't expect things to work as God made them work. The tree in the garden. If I were designing the Garden of Eden, you know what I would do? I'd not put the tree in there because if the tree wasn't in there, nobody could eat from the tree. But the reality is, is that there was no choice and there's no love, there's no relationship. Well, what about after the fall, God kicks Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden? They're like, man, that seems kind of harsh. It's not how I would have done it. But the truth is, had they stayed and they ate from the, from the, the, the tree of life, then they would, have been, they would have been stuck that way forever. No opportunity for salvation. The flood and the ark seems like a weird way to wipe out the world and have some people survive. We see people being raised from the dead in the Bible multiple times. We see the story of the oil that never runs out. Fish and bread multiplied to feed thousands. 
And the greatest miracle of all, salvation by faith. None of these things are the ways that man would have done these things. And we think, I think as Christians, if we want to mature, if we want to grow, if we want to see God do amazing things in our lives, we have to start trusting Him and letting Him move. Stop telling Him how He can and He can't work in our lives. Instead, just trust Him. Because I believe that every time that we try to direct Him and how He can work in our lives, we limit His ability to work in our lives. Just like I told you. They weren't able to get any healing in Bethlehem because they, saw, they didn't see Jesus. They saw the kid they grew up with. They grew up there. And they couldn't accept that from him. How we receive God impacts what he can do in our lives. And it doesn't just, it's not even limited to that, truthfully. How you receive anybody in your life is how, is how you're able to receive from them. You know, the scripture that says if you receive a prophet in the name of the prophet, you receive a prophet's reward. But if you receive a righteous man in the name of a righteous man, you receive a righteous man's reward. What happens if you receive a prophet in the name of a righteous man? You get the righteous man's reward. You know, I've been asked, you know, do I have to call you pastor? No, you don't have to. You don't have to do many things in life. But how you view me is how you'll be able to receive from me. If you see me as just another guy, you receive from me as just another guy. If you see me as your pastor, you'll be able to receive from me as your pastor. And the truth is, is that I've seen that happen so many times. People have left the church or people weren't able to, to, to receive from me because they knew me as somebody else before I became a pastor. Or as you know, I, I, I work full-time as well, so if people know me from that life first, it's really hard for them to see me as their pastor, but it limits what they can receive from me because they're not willing to see me that way. And the same is true for God. If you limit how God, what you expect to receive from God, you limit his ability to work in your life. And the thing is, his ways are not our ways. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. His ways are superior to our ways. That's a good one to write down. You want to memorize that way. God's ways are superior to our ways. So let's begin to, to trust him and quit trying to define him by our own experiences, our own abilities, and our own expectations. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.